Hello and welcome to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe and the greatest living American writer. You can find Book and Film Globe at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much, much more. This week we have a great show for you. Daniel Cohen will be here to talk about The Bear, the new restaurant show airing on FX and Hulu. It's a fictional restaurant show. It's not a cooking reality show. We cover those a lot as well. And Omar Gayaga will be here to talk about Nathan Fielder's new high-concept comedy project, The Rehearsal, now airing on HBO Max. But first, I'm going to argue with our chief film critic, Stephen Garrett, about Nope, the new Jordan Peele movie, now in theaters. Stay tuned for that right after this musical interlude. Please The summer of movie revivals continues. A very interesting film is in theaters now. It's been out for a couple of weeks. I was away hiking in the Rocky Mountains and I wasn't able to see it the week it came out, but I've seen it now. And Stephen Garrett has seen it as well. It's called Nope. It's the new film from Jordan Peele and it is in theaters now and will be on streaming services forevermore. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Hello. All right. Stephen is talking to us from the wilds of New England, where he goes to the summer for the summer to get away from the movies. <laughs> but you can't get ever... away from the movies. I can't. I can't escape them. You can't get away. They're from everywhere. Them. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I don't know. So you reviewed Nope for Book yeah. and Film Globe, and I. I mean, I. I think you enjoyed it as sort of a you know summer popcorn film, but I don't. I don't know. I don't feel like you liked it. As much as I did, you know, this is Jordan Peele's third movie, and I think at this point it's safe to say that he is a, an important director, certainly in his own mind, right? You know, <laughs> That's you, true. No, no one uh, thinks Jordan Peele is more important than Jordan Peele does, I, I, and I, you know, Nope is, I don't know, you can, can kind of go two ways with Jordan Peele, right? You can either be like he is the you know, black genre Hitchcock Tarantino, or he's the new M night Shyamalan, you know, there's like, a, right. It could go either way. And I, I feel like Nope kind of straddles that line. Well, yeah, this is his signs, isn't it? It's like, you know, M Knight's uh, riff on the alien invasion. And I, you know, kind of deflates for me the same way. It's a bit of a souffle that kind of folds in on itself. I, I, it works as a spectacle, but if you think about it for just one iota longer than Jordan Peele wants you to, it it really just doesn't add up, I feel. Uh, I think it has a lot of interesting ideas. He's certainly a thoughtful filmmaker. He wants us to think about what it is that we're watching and why, and why we have a reaction to the world the way that we do, you know? But I feel like I mean, Get Out was just amazing and airtight and so unexpected and great and its internal logic especially made sense and followed through and ended with a really great uh, climax that that made sense and fed into you know everything fed into that um i think us was a bit of a mess uh, somewhat but the, the the that whole idea was so strong of these doppelgangers that you know that uh it was, it was able to carry. I mean, no one could doubt that Get Out is an all-time masterpiece uh, movie. You know, it's like a, cl a hard classic. to top. 
uh, a classic, uh, you know, a top top 100 classic of, of all time in American movie making. Um, yeah, Us is not, but there's some cool stuff in it. And I feel like, you know, Nope and Us are, are, are somewhat similar. I, I really enjoyed like the last 40 minutes or so when our characters are, are fighting the monster. It was a pretty sustained uh, piece of action filmmaking. And I, I saw someone online, I saw them comparing it to some extent to Jaws, you know, the way, yeah, they, well, the way they were, I mean, the cinematographers, yeah. yeah, the cinematographer is a total Quint character too, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a white film director who kind of comes in and is extremely, well, that's the major problem with the movie I felt like was that, you know, some, the sub, especially the, um, the supporting characters are very poorly defined and yeah. the, the whole vibe. So, so you, you get this, um, the first half is kind of just a lot of hipster attitude, I feel like, and and, <laughs> and, and just sort of like, you know, peering around corners, but not really getting to anything. But then, it, you know, once it kicks in, I feel like it's pretty effective. And, and we have to, oh, sorry, we have to t- talk about what the movie's about, basically. Like, there's this family of black horse trainers who provide horses for Hollywood movies and have, as far as I can tell, since the dawn of cinema... Uh, and so that's right. kind of, that's kind of interesting. And Daniel Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer play the siblings who uh, inherit the horse farm after their father uh, myster- is mysteriously killed by falling objects from the sky. And the movie kind of take goes from there. Uh, and we it takes a while to find out what actually is going on. But, and we'll, but once we do that, the action really kicks in. But you know, there's also this like there's a subplot about. <laughs> Stephen plays like a, a former child star uh, in, a, in a show called Kid Sheriff, who has opened a like a Western theme park out in I don't know Palmdale outside of Los Angeles, out in the out in the dust. No, it's Agua. No, no, no. It is Agua Dulce, Agua Dulce, California. Right. So I don't think that's an actual. How about that? I don't think that's a sweet. No, it's an actual place, and there's a, there's a sign for it. That you see them take Agua Dulce, the the road to Agua Dulce. We've they mention Agua Dulce towards the end. It's a real like I, I saw the movie twice because I wanted to see it in IMAX, which was its own thing. But I was like, Agua Dulce. Did they even talk? And I noticed like, oh yeah, they do kind of reference it. Now, now I'm just worried that Agua it's Dulce, a place. Now I'm just worried that Agua Dulce is going to get all gentrified. Um, but <laughs> yeah, but 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 he plays this former child star who opens this like cowboy theme park, and there's there's a subplot involving a sitcom that he was on as a kid. Um, starring a chimp called Gordy who goes insane and kills a bunch of people. <laughs> I mean, you got to admit the Gordy scenes are, are pretty great. Incredible. Incredible. And it starts that way and you're really discombobulated. I love that. Um, I just feel like the more you think about the Gordy thing, it just does not make sense. It does not make sense at all. Like did it, let's, let's even say that Gordy didn't kill anybody. He certainly mauled people. Right. Yeah. But like, why would Mad Magazine be making fun of that? You know, or why would Saturday Night Live Live be making light of a tragedy where an ape teared somebody's face off? Like what? Like it just I'm like, I'm sorry, that would not have happened. Hey, man, it was the 90s. It was the 90s. Whatever. Everything was ironic. It was the 90s. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It did not fly. Of course not. Uh, Yeah. There are some internal logic problems, but. You know, there is this sort of um, overarching theme that Hollywood chews up our experiences and chews up the people who enter its maw and spits them out. 
with right. the, with right. the exception of Jordan Peele, who has made millions upon millions of dollars uh, <laughs> in Hollywood by by he's, telling he's us how horrible it out. by telling us how oh, yeah. But you know, I I mean, as someone who um, attempted to breach the walls of the entertainment industry and failed miserably, I I could relate a little bit to to some of those <laughs> themes. And you know, there's this thing where they're you know the Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer are trying to capture. And Im- the image of the the monster, the alien, whatever it is that's that's creating all this havoc um, in Agua Dolce and nowhere else apparently. Like, why? Why? If if, if this monster were really hungry, why wouldn't it just go to Sherman Oaks? <laughs> a lot of a lot of people. Also, I've been there. Also, yeah. Also, like Stephen Yen is feeding it horses. Okay, so how how long does that get sustained? And why would he think people would want to pay tickets? You know, pay buy tickets and, and pay to see some weird alien eat horses? Like, what? And you're going to do this every week? You don't think PETA is going to be on your ass? You don't think the government's going to shut that down fast? Like, they, again, the more you think about it, the less it just makes sense. I mean, yeah. as a sensory experience, yes. As a spectacle, yes. The movie is really uh, delightful and and really eerie. And, and unlike anything, it's truly original and it's great that it's out in the world, but... Boy, this thing falls apart quick if you start thinking about it. Maybe the key is to not start thinking about it too heavily. (laughs) Yes. This this from a filmmaker who made Get Out and Us, which are nothing but big ideas. And his big idea here is, I think, interesting that we, we, a spectacle is a curse. There's There's a price you pay for spectacle. People suffer so that other people delight in the spectacle. You know, I, I like that. I think there is a lot of integrity in that. Um, yeah. And the fact that this idea that Gordy, the tragedy of Gordy gets turned into just more pop culture fodder that, you know, you can sell mementos and memorabilia for, you know. Yeah. Um, and there's but, also, uh, that's also, let, let, let's, let's be clear. There's also this revival of the idea of the black cowboy. You know, the, this, you know, Jordan Peele makes very clear that the first person ever captured on film was a black man riding a horse, a Bahamian cowboy. And I think it, you know, this, this brings that back really well. And, you know, this is, we're, we're in an, the era of Django Unchained and uh, there's a movie on Netflix that I, I reviewed a, a Idris Elba movie called Concrete Cowboy. About, yeah, I like that one. Yeah, it was a good movie, you know, about, about black people riding horses in Philadelphia. And I haven't it's seen Philadelphia, the, Philadelphia, yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen The Harder They Fall yet, um, but that's like a, it's kind of a black spaghetti Western starring Jonathan Majors and, and and others, you know, that's on Netflix as well. So there's a sort of revival, this revisionism of history. And that, you know, Jordan Peele does that, I think, very, very well. And, you know, look, no, Nope is, is worth talking about. <laughs> it's worth talking about. Well, it does have some interesting ideas in it. It's just unfortunate that, you know, again, like, I'm sorry to bring up Get Out again, but that had a narrative integrity that also resonated with the story ideas and they were big ideas and they were challenging, uh, you know, kind of moonshot ideas that, that you don't see movies wrestle with, especially studio movies. And to have that be such a success, it's great. It sets a bar. And, and, you know, there was a part of me that was thinking, okay, his last two movies were very overtly about race. Is this about race? And you realize like it's not. And on the one hand, why should all Jordan Peele movies be about race? On the other hand, this does. This is race adjacent. It does have. It is. It is. It is not subplots and ideas about race. This is not about race. I mean, there is a family of yeah. black cowboys at the center of it. <laughs> you know, right, they, right, right. They make it very clear. I mean, I don't. I don't know if it's. Yeah, and you know, 
you could argue that the animals that are being exploited and are being chewed up are are um, you know people of color who perform for our entertainment. That there's that aspect to it, but you know you'd have to you have to um, you'd have to write an article about that that I don't think I want to. <laughs> I don't think I, I want well, to the thought. thing is, unfortunately, people have right this past week. I keep seeing on the internet these thought pieces that are not very thoughtful about this movie, which is not very considered. You know, yeah. I, I just think much, Jordan should much. have made it a few more passes on the drafts of the script before he sat down and well, said, let's do this. Yeah, I mean, I th- I th- there, you know, especially like you talk about that director uh, the, who, who was trying to get this perfect shot. I just I feel like there was a, a really good tight thriller here. But the first half is a lot of, um, you know, just sort of like asides and like little, little, little hipster phrasings. And, you know, I, I, you don't really get a sense of of who Kiki Palmer's character is and why she does what she does. I mean, she's very good. Not really? She's very good. She's very yeah, good. She's, she's very antic. I, I found her a little grating after a while, but she's certainly antic and charismatic. She's yeah. watchable. And, you know, Daniel Kaluuya is obviously, like, ha- has a strong screen presence. Um, it, I, I, and, and Steven Yeun was, was pretty good as well. I mean, it, but, the, but the supporting characters felt a little cartoony to me. And, Super cartoony. And Angel is kind of cartoony and yeah. also... You know, and and Angel's this uh, electronics guy who helps him set up cameras. Yeah, um, product placement for best for probably. product placement, not for best, Fri- but for fries, which is like fries the, electronics, fries yeah. electronics, which is like the second string West Coast electronics <laughs> franchise. It's where my where my where, where my, like, my uncle would always go to buy his computer equipment when he came to visit us for Thanksgiving in Phoenix. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely not like the number one brand. It's like it's like ET having uh, Reese's Pieces instead of M and M's, right? Because exactly. you know they couldn't cut the deal with M and M's. Right. Reese's. Good product. Um, right. Anyway, Nope is in theaters now. I think it's it's worth watching. I, but yeah, like I said though, I, I feel like the, if the screenplay had been nice and tight, if it had actually been Jaws, you know, with with the themes, and you could have even had the Gordy aside, tight screenplay. With the Gordy scenes and as flashback, that's what I would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if they had actually treated that as a tragedy, the way the world would have treated it as a tragedy before it turned into pop fodder, you know, you can have that both. I just feel like they they made light of it yeah. really quickly. Well, there's no accident. That was absolutely horrific. Yeah, agreed, and there's, there's no accident that you know, Jordan Peele made the remake of uh, The Twilight Zone for uh, CBS, the former CBS All Access, now Paramount Plus. Uh, which nobody watched because nobody had CBS All Access. But again, you have to kind of just look at at Nope as like a yeah, pretty good extended Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, pretty pretty much is. But you know, it's just again, I, you know, look, look how horrific that scene at night when the when the uh, the flying saucer is kind of regurgitating all this like you know bodily fluid. It's not even blood because it's weirdly viscous and. You know, onto the house. So and that's metal, and pieces of metal. There's a wheelchair. A wheel. It spits out yeah. a wheelchair. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of fantastic. So I love the machinations of that monster and everything. But at the end, I'm a kind of like, what is this ultimately about? They think they can save the ranch if they get a photo of the UFO. Like, how is that really going to do anything? Also, they sold half the horses. Why don't they just sell the whole ranch? In fact, Stephen Yoon wants to buy the whole ranch. If that's what they want to do, they should just do it. Kiki Palmer doesn't even seem to care about the ranch. Again, I'm getting into like the weeds with this because the story makes no sense. 
Yeah. You know, if you, if, if uh, you probably better to see this like dubbed in a different language so that you really don't know what's going on, but you just enjoy the spectacle. Yeah. Why is a TMZ guy driving an e motorcycle? Who the hell has e motorcycles and why would TMZ be, you know, paying that much money to have them? You know, why is he in this weird silver helmet? Like, they're just, he was cool looking. He was cool looking, though. He was really cool looking. (laughs) You know what? I think the whole movie is like, this would be really cool. This is cool looking. Let's put this together. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. The story doesn't make sense. Who cares? This is cool looking. Let's just do this. That final shot. And I mean, the final shot. The final shot is so good. I mean, of of uh, when Kiki Palmer looks on up. the horse. Daniel Kaluuya on the horse with that, with the out yonder banner over him. Uh, I just love it. What does that even mean? What's it? Why is that so cool? Like, it's just it's, him. Like the whole black cowboy thing, I think is overstated because it's like, like because a black guy has a horse, he's a black cowboy. Like, I, they're I don't. Horse trainers, you know, just... they're the horse trainers. Stephen, what are you talking about? Of course, they're cowboys. And also, why? Who? Who the hell? What are you? What are you talking about? Horse trainers? What westerns are being made out? You know, in Hollywood, that you know, there's a need for horse trainers. There, there really isn't. Yellowstone. Yellowstone. We talk about Yellowstone every other week on here. The harder they All fall. Right. Um, okay. I don't know. Silverado. <laughs> 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 oh right! So every thirty years they have a renaissance where they can pay the bills. Sure, there are always. I don't horses. know. I just feel like always horses. If, There's always horses in TV and movies. Everyone loves a horse. I feel like if you really looked at animal trainers and their business model, they would probably have diversified so that they have more than just horses because right. that's a hard business to maintain. I'm just saying. Of course, of course, Stephen. Uh, my problem is I thought about it too much because it doesn't make sense, and that's my problem with the movie. My problem with the movie is that, all these questions. My problem with the movie is that the horses didn't talk. <laughs> there wasn't enough Gordy. Yeah. Gordy was all CGI, by the way. Did you see that? Like the guy who played Gordy? No. Was it? Oh, it's really interesting. He's. Uh, I'm gonna look up his name right now. He. Andy um, Serkis. Played... No, it was the other one. There's another dude who plays, uh, he's really good. Did you see uh, that movie, uh, The Square? No. Oh, well, there's a guy, Terry Notary is his name, uh. um, who, uh, The Square is this uh, movie by the guy who made um, uh, this upcoming Triangle of Sadness, Ruben Oslin. And there's a, a really disturbing scene halfway through the movie. It's about the art world. And there's this guy, Terry Notary, whose whole shtick is to act like a chimpanzee. And it's really great, and he's very convincing. And so I think Jordan Peele saw that movie and was like, I'm going to hire that guy to be Gordy. <laughs> well, here's the thing I'll say about Gordy. The five minutes we get of Gordy, at least about five minutes, was better so good. than the entire planet, new Planet of the Apes trilogy. That's fair. That's fair. Those movies were yeah. horrible. Um, so, de- so depressing. You know, Gordy is, is great. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, I'm sure there's going to be like – I have this new thing where I, I collect like ironic t-shirts and hats from TV shows and movies. And I'm sure there's going to be, what's the name of the Gordy sitcom again? Gordy's home. Gordy's home. I'm going to get a Gordy's home t-shirt. <laughs> so what you, you, you sidebarred me about the t-shirt thing. What did you think about the Jesus lizard, the Jesus lizard and all the indie rock nineties, indie rock. Yeah. What's that? T-shirt? What's that about? You really think, you really think that, uh, you know, 30 something black woman in, uh, 2022 is going to be wearing a Jesus Lizard t-shirt. Like they, they were an indie rock band from Chicago in the 90s, which is when I existed. It just doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. No, but Okay, you know, so here's, but, here's the explanation. You want to hear one explanation? Sure. Is that uh, they start wearing those t-shirts after the 
the the big flying saucer takes a big bloody dump on the house and they all have to flee and then they stay at angel's house and one person was speculating that like they didn't have any clothes they had to change so they're wearing angel's clothes and angel has a huge early 90s indie rock t-shirt collection <laughs> also why is he listening to tracks why is he listening to i wear my sunglasses at night no one why is it slowing down like it's on an audio tape which yeah. it's not because it's not because that come on but why, and what is the why would anybody, whole internal I mean, there's no place you're going to hear that song except for maybe in a Walgreens these days. I mean, again, you know why? Because it looks cool. Let's do it because it looks cool. Not because it makes sense for the story. Old age home. Um, All right. Well, all right. All right. There's a lot to talk about with Nope. If you have no idea what Stephen and I are talking about, go see it for yourself. I recommend it. Stephen sort of (laughs) recommends it. And Stephen, we'll talk to you in September, man. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. Are we still recording? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It does, does it matter? I'm always matter. I'm always recording. I, I, just sit, always recording. I just sit here all day with my thoughts and recording. It's the Truman Show. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. And no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. A. Fans of old school Comedy Central know who Nathan Fielder is. He is a Canadian Jewish comedian who had a show called Nathan for You, where he would basically um, come up with absurd business ideas or talk to people who had absurd business ideas and help them put them in practice. And uh, Nathan is back on HBO with a much bigger budget, a show called The Rehearsal, and Omar Gayaga watched it and wrote about it for us and here he is to talk to us about the rehearsal hello hey neil thanks for having me yeah so so nathan um someone someone gave nathan the keys to the kingdom basically (laughs) they gave him a lot of money a lot of budget yes it's it's a bigger much bigger show than than nathan for you for sure yeah and so the rehearsal like i mean this is a very high concept comedy right why don't you explain us a little bit about what what it is yeah it's a six episode limited series and the idea behind it not not too much unlike Nathan for you is that it's sort of a, a mock kind of a documentary about him helping people. But in this case, he's helping them get through life situations that they are fearful of or are worried about. And in order to do that, he stages very elaborate um, re, re, kind of um, recreations of environments. Like he will rebuild an entire bar uh, just so someone can rehearse having a conversation that they're going to have in that bar uh, about, you know, some kind of relatively trivial thing. Uh, there's an, a plot line that apparently goes through the whole season about a woman who's trying to decide if she wants to have kids. So he sets up a very elaborate childhood raising simulation with multiple kid actors that are swapped out at different ages uh, in a house that they set up with cameras and, you know, that follow, uh, you know, day and night, uh, you know, what it would be like to be a parent. I mean, just very, very, and that's really the central joke of the show is the length to which he goes to, to give these people these rehearsal experiences. But then also as, as with Nathan for you, he himself as as the character of Nathan Fielder is drawn into these things as well on a, on a kind of a personal level, like with the childhood simulation, he eventually, and this is not, not much of a spoiler. It happens in the second episode. He has to step in and be like the life, the, uh, the parenting, the co-parenting partner of this woman when they can't find a suitable uh, partner to simulate that part of it with her. So, uh, you know, it, 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 he has the, the very deadpan humor approach, you know, the character that he 
plays on screen is is kind of the sad sack uh, who has trouble connecting with people and making emotional connections. And that that sort of plays out again in, in this show like it did on Nathan for You. It kind of, um, this sounds to me like it is the great grandchild or at least the grandchild of the classic Albert Brooks movie, Real Life. Oh, um, yes, 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 yes. Where, uh, you know, it, which, which itself was a parody of early reality television. Um, and, you know, it's it's like, you know, you're a dad, I'm a dad, you know that there's no simulation that can prepare yeah. <laughs> you for what it's actually like to be a parent 24-7. No, and and that's also part of the joke. It's a very, there's a lot of elements. It's, it's a very complex show in what it's trying to do. And and you sometimes can't figure out what, what it's trying to mock and what it's trying to uh, say about, you know, human behavior. But the woman who is in the simulation very religious, you know, d- does not want to have sex before marriage, even, you know, even simulated sex with, with the partners they bring in to date her um, and has very exacting, you know, I have to live in a country house and I have to have a husband and I have to have this. Like she's trying to set up you know, her excuse for not being a parent up to this point is that it, it's never been the perfect conditions, you know, to which, you know, I hate to break it to her, but like there's never perfect conditions for being a parent. Um, but in this simulation, like they're, giving her the farmhouse and the, and, you know, the babysitting help that, that no, no normal parent would, would get in, in a situation like this. Right. And, you know, I mean, I, I guess my question is, you know, what, what is, and you asked this in the article too, what is Nathan Fielder up to here? Well, what is he really trying to, uh, you know, is he mocking these people? Is he mocking himself? Is he mocking the whole idea of these sort of shows? You know, there's, there's shows all over, for instance, Food Network where, people come in and like try to fix a restaurant or, you know, or there's, you know, home improvement shows where you're, you know, you're trying to redo things. And is he making fun of that kind of show where, you know, that sort of reality TV self-help genre? There's some of that. And also I think some of it is that it was made during the pandemic. You see people, you know, handling the babies wearing face masks, you know, you see some of that. So obviously some of this was filmed, uh, you know, last two years. I feel like what he's getting at is, you know, his persona on both shows is like, the planner, the person who has these big ideas and can craft around the unpredictability of life. And I think the central conceit of this show is that you can't really plan for the chaos of life. And, and as, and I think we were all like, you know, in lockdown trying to control our lives and control the outcome of the chaos around us and outside our door. Speak for yourself. (laughs) Well, we tried. It didn't work out so well for most of us. Uh, but But I feel like that's kind of what the show is getting at, is that no matter how well you plan, no matter how much you rehearse, there's always going to be that curveball. There's always going to be the, this element of human behavior that you can't plan for. Uh, that's what I'm getting so far. I'm only two episodes in. Uh, we've got, you know, another episode is going to drop today as we're recording this that I haven't seen yet. And from what I've read of reviews that I've seen up to the, the next to last episode, that this um, childhood simulation kind of takes over most of the show, but that there are other, there are other threads in the show, other plot lines, other characters. The pilot episode is before we even get to that. And then, you know, I, I'm hearing there's this Synecdoche, uh, New York kind of element to it where he's teaching an acting class on the Nathan Fielder method, you know, <laughs> with all these actors he has to bring in to do these simulations. So I think there's there's going to be an element of kind of self-reflection or self-criticism. Uh, I think I think Nathan Fielder is very brutal on himself on these shows. He, may, he paints himself in very unflattering light <laughs> in all of these I, shows. I, I guess my question is, because this is a comedy, is it funny? Uh 
I think the first episode is very funny in the the absurdity of the situation of the recreating an entire Williamsburg bar just for the purposes of letting someone walk through it and and practice a speech they want to give. Um, that that sort of scale and budget is funny at first, and then I I don't know by the second episode I was already feeling some downer vibes. I was already feeling some like, Ooh, this is getting kind of dark. This whole idea of this person who is oblivious about parenting, but thinks she's doing a great job, you know, and is completely deluded about it. Um, that you're starting to get into the, this territory that we saw with, um, John Wilson with how to with John Wilson, which is a show that Nathan Fielder produces where it's, it's getting, it's very observational about human behavior and not all of it is, is happy. A lot of it is kind of dark and melancholy. And I, I think this show Definitely is more moody than Nathan for you. Nathan for you had a lot of laughs and was very funny and had some very great premises. Yeah. This show feels a little bit deeper and darker and more complex there's, than I think Nathan for you was able to achieve. There's no gag like dumb Starbucks. <laughs> no, no, but I feel like there's within the context of this show, there's there's absurdities like that. You know, yeah. uh, absurdities like meeting the meeting the guy that this woman is trying to date and thinks could be a co- good co-parent and then discovering that he's, you know, messing with his phone as he's driving and then he's he's striking up a bong before he comes back to visit with her and Nathan Fielder's, you know, kind of grilling the guy about, are, are you sure you want to do that? Are you know, you're going to come back, you know, baked and all, you know, be around a child? Like uh, there's a lot of sort of character absurdity in this show. Um, but I, it feels if you if you watch Nathan for you all the way to the end, it feels a lot like that Finding Francis episode, which was the very last, the series finale that was an hour long and felt more like a, a long documentary, uh, and that had a lot of weirdness and sadness and, and sort of futility of existence vibes to it. I feel like this show is more aligned with that than the rest of Nathan for you. All right, before I let you go, I have to talk about this with you. Now, you and I have played together on the Book and Film Globe Pub Trivia Team. Oh yeah. Uh, Pretty successfully, you know, you, you've got, you know, you have... You're a whiz uh, at it. You're great at it. Well, I, I have a trivia history, but you also, like, have a pretty deep well of pop culture knowledge, which uh, helps when you're playing a pop culture-based trivia game like like we, we were doing. And so, uh, you know, we, we fielded a, a competitive team. But uh, they, in this show, the rehearsal, the first episode that we're talking about, is all about pub trivia. I, I received several... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I received several text messages... Um, from trivia friends about it, asking if I'd seen it. And I actually haven't seen it because I only uh, subscribed to HBO Max during uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm and or the Game of Thrones type show seasons. But I guess my question to you is, how accurately does it portray the world of pub trivia? Uh, I, yeah, it's it, the team that this guy is on in the first episode is is a very serious competitive team, so much so that when the integrity of, of the way they were playing is called into question. He's absolutely devastated. Like the fact that, that anyone would think that he might cheat at it completely destroys him, you know, like, and it's so that, yeah, they, it's, it's, it's accurate in that sense. I think people take it. Are they seriously. good? Do they seem like they're good or they, could I, could, could we beat them? Uh, he's pretty smart. He, he watches a lot of Jeopardy and, and they show him watching Jeopardy at the very beginning of the episode. But what the, there's a great gag in the first episode of Nathan Fielder, getting the answers to a pub trivia in advance in order again in order to control the situation and planting those answers in the environment like just walking down the street like having a cop just say something that tips that would tip someone off to an answer in the trivia so that's a great bit in the first episode where he's sort of like planting and planting clues in the real world to, to implant incept into his mind the answers to the trip of trivia we all dream for of the perfect context clue i was i was um i was watching jeopardy the other day and i just read an article on an on, on an airplane uh, in this magazine called national geographic history about uh 
the biblical uh, woman Jezebel uh, worshiping the god Baal. And uh, it came up on Jeopardy. And I was like, I nailed it. I don't need Nathan Fielder is what I'm telling you. <laughs> you don't uh, need him planting clues along your daily oh, I don't walk. need it. I just, pl- I, just, I, just, I just plant the seeds myself and watch them blossom. Anyway, the rehearsal is airing on HBO Max. Omar Gayaga is here to talk about it. And he wrote about it this week. And you should check it out if that, that's your thing. Omar, thanks a lot for talking. Thanks, Neil. This was fun. Appreciate it. Right. And it was a rehearsal for the actual conversation we're going to have. Oh, okay. Yeah, this was all a simulation. Oh, fantastic. Yep, we're going to do it. Now we're, now we're going to do it for real. I feel prepared. Yep. Do you know what beef is? Uh-uh. Ask yourself. Uh-uh. Do you know what beef is? You never really know what's going to capture a pop culture nerd. And this summer, a show on FX and Hulu called The Bear has done just that. And it's a surprise hit. Uh, it, the Bear is a show about an Italian beef diner restaurant dive in Chicago. And uh, it has really, it has really caught on, and it's really good. And Daniel Cohen wrote about it for us in the last week. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm fine. So yeah, so you write, we write, uh, you write a lot about uh, reality cooking shows, and we talk a lot about food and cooking on this podcast. And the bear is the real reality of cooking in, in, in and in restaurants. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean it's 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 an extremely good show, and I'm I'm just going to cut to the chase and say that I, I think it's you know right up there on the short list of the best shows of 2022. But what it, what's singular about it in comparison to some of the others that I really liked is that when I was done watching it, I, I couldn't stop thinking about my own experiences having worked in places like that when I was younger and how accurately it depicted some of the real chaos that can happen behind the scenes and, and you're right in in contrast to the types of things that we see when we're watching like staged reality cooking shows this was i, I don't know just it, it felt like it was sort of trying to respond to that sort of again as i mentioned the article like the chef as rock star archetype right gordon, gordon ramsay gordon ramsay or that annoying australian guy aren't swooping in to save the this uh, Italian beef joint from its itself, from its mismanagement problems and from its, its just sanitation problems. I mean, in episode two, this restaurant gets a C rating from the health department. That's, that's right. bad. Right. It's very bad. They find, you know, they, they find like cigarettes on, on, a, on a range top and just this like weird fire hazards everywhere. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely made clear that this is a place that's about to fail or is in the process of failing. And like that leads to so much tension behind the scenes that is exacerbated by the show's main character, Carmi, who is a sort of classically trained fine dining chef coming in and, and attempting to, you know, bring in some of like the protocols and the, uh, the techniques that you would see in, in a fine dining kitchen to, you know, a massive failure, essentially. It's a massive failure, but, you know, he, it's not like his food isn't good. I mean, people are always eating his sandwiches and, and saying, mmm, this is good. You know, it's like he's bringing, he's bringing um, some quality control to some extent. Sure. And, he's got, and he's got his, his, uh, his number two, his sous chef, Sydney, uh, who is this young African-American woman who uh, also is classically trained and, you know, worships Carmi. 
in some ways. I mean, not not on a personal level, but on, as on a chef level. You, if, right. you worship, if you worship Carmi on a personal level, you, you've got some real problems because, I mean, there there's rarely been a, a more messed up, dysfunctional character on TV than Carmi, who played by Jeremy Allen White from Shameless. And man, he's good. God, this guy, this guy has just got, what a performance. He he has to act at such an intense level at, all, at almost all times. And it's it's clearly such a, it's a performance that clearly just took so much out of him just to, to, to maintain it. You know, episode seven, which is the sort of, I think the greatest episode, episode maybe of, of television all year, was shot in one take, essentially. It's, it's a 20-minute take of just everything just collapsing in the kitchen. And, and you can just see veins popping out of this dude's neck and forehead. And, and you know, there's no break from any of this in the script. And it's just it, thinking about what it would take to do that as a single take, which they apparently reshot three or four times. I mean, it's... I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm impressed by the, you know, the, the level of tenacity that that... Yeah, and you can feel the heat. You can just feel the sweat and, and, and the the struggle. You know, and so he's really the whole cast is really good. But Jeremy Allen yeah. White is a real standout. And also, you know, you, you have to mention Ebon Moss Backrack, who yeah. plays his cousin friend. I don't know exactly what their relationship is. Richie, who worked in the re- restaurant before um, Carmi comes to take over. That guy, that guy is such a good actor. My God, you know, he was in. Um, I don't know if you watched the Dropout, the Elizabeth Holmes show on Hulu, but he yes. played. He comes in toward, you know, sort of the back end of the show. It's a long yeah, yeah, yeah. show. And he plays this Washington Post reporter. And it's one of the best depictions of a journalist on screen that I can remember. And he really, you know, gives it a lot of depth uh, to a character that to, could easily be a cliche. The same goes for Richie, right? I mean, this is just like kind of a Chicago mook who is like not, yeah. not really respectful of Carmi's culinary ambitions. And yet this character also has just, He's a lot of shades and a lot of depth, and it's just so well acted. Yeah, it's it's I, I I couldn't believe it was the same guy from the dropout, honestly, because it's just such a it's such an involved performance, and it it could be a caricature. You know what I mean? Like when, especially yeah. when he sort of starts ranting about you know gentrification and people moving into the neighborhood and that kind of thing. But there's like this weird hidden tenderness to him, and 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 like Carmi, like he's struggling with the trauma of uh, Carmi's brother's suicide, and, and and all the things that sort of inform the show from the start. Yeah, and, like, and that's another, well, that's, that's another thing too, right? Like uh, the show, the premise of the show is that Carmi's brother, who ran this beef restaurant, uh, committed suicide and was an addict with a lot of problems, and so you have his family and friends struggling to um, clean up the mess. And so as someone who has um, dealt with addiction issues yeah. myself, you know, I, I found the depiction of the life of an addict and of, of recovery, um, not only of the addict himself, but of the people around him. I found, found that very uh, realistic. As, yeah. You know, well, as, as, as somebody who in the last couple of years had to deal with this, the, the suicide of a loved one, like that grief never goes away you know i I don't want to make this too heavy of a conversation but it's just like they nailed it on the head when absolutely there's no way to express it there's no way to get rid of it and and at the end of the show carmy gives this great monologue at an al-anon meeting it's about seven or eight minutes long and he says at one point that you know i I learned to speak through my food and like as my food got better i cut more and more people out of my life and i got quieter and quieter and it's just like 
what more can you say? That's that's it's a perfect. Well, the writing is so good on this show, and you know, I mean, it. Uh, Christopher Storer is uh, the the showrunner and the creator and the writer. And you know, you mentioned in your in your review that it, it kind of resembles black box community theater at, at points, but it you know, it's a really good um, representation of black box community theater. It has that sort of intensity and the that sort of realism. And and let's um let's not forget Chicago as a character. And I you know, I lived in Chicago. I went to college in yeah. Chicago. I lived in Chicago for many years. I worked there as a reporter and no city in the United States has better black box community theater. That's a really Chicago. good. That's a really Chicago. good point. Yeah, that's Chicago. And so this show is this show, which is like drips with of Chicago attitude. In it's you know not only in its use of the city as as a backdrop, um, but also just in the style of the writing and the style of the the gritty realistic performances remind me of early Steppenwolf shows and some of the shows I would I would see in Chicago and so. You know, it's the most Chicago. Well, Sh- Shameless is a very Chicago show. I mean, but, it, it sort of it sort of lives in the shadow of Shameless to an extent because obviously Jeremy Allen White is in it, right? And to sort of for him to sort of like get beyond the lip character and and not remind you of him as as this show is going on, I think is a real achievement, right? Because it's it's on the surface you could just say, okay, he's just playing lip again, which is not. You know, no. there are there are things that are sort of like, uh, you know, very sort of like like transparently similar. But honestly, the show is, has got so many angles to it that it, it, it by the end, I'm not really thinking about Shameless at all. Like I was thinking about Uncut Gems. I was thinking about Good Time. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, just things that made me uncomfortable, but in a pleasant way. Um, no, I was glad. I'm glad to see this show because honestly, you know, Chicago has become kind of a cliche in TV in recent years with Chicago Med and Chicago Fire and Chicago, what you know, Chicago, whatever, you know, and it, it, it sort of becomes this generic backdrop. And to see the city as it really is and yeah. as people who live in it actually experience it, you know, on a day to day level, and you know, it is really refreshing. And, uh, you know, the, so if you love. Chicago, if you like food, if you like just good acting and sort of tense comedy drama, I yeah. mean, you can't really, it doesn't really get much better than The Bear. It bears mentioning, too, that the the food scenes are shot really beautifully. Yeah. Like they, I'm not sure if they're shooting them on stock or they just did a lot of post-production, but like the scenes of food cooking are as good as anything you'll see on a cooking show. It's really nice. I would eat one of those sandwiches for sure. <laughs> I would definitely. I, would eat those I mean, I, I would. I would lay in my hotel room. Now, what's your? What's your? What's your? What's your? What's your order? Because this is a, a crucial question. Uh, yeah. What are my choices? I don't. I don't not even. Well, sure. you can have it. You can have it. You know. Hot or sweet. You can have it wet or dipped or dry. That's that's the standard uh, Italian beef. I would. I would say hot and dipped. Yeah, that's the way to go. Because because wet, I mean, wet's messy. And what's what's the point of having a dry Italian beef sandwich? And I just, you know, you know, sweet pepper, sweet and hot, it just, just kind of depends on, on how much um, Zantac I had in my bowl. <laughs> you know, in terms of hot. Because, like, if I didn't have any of that available, I might have to go sweet just to, to preserve, to keep myself out of the emergency room. <laughs> but... Yeah, but that's the thing. But it's 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 such a great show, and I would love to see uh, Carmi 
on the next season of Next Level Chef. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they're doing the, the show did get renewed, right? Because it's yeah, it did. It did. It got renewed. This show um, got renewed. It's amazing to me that this show this show is a hit, and you know, it it gives me some hope that you know it does. A, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to find on Hulu too. So there's that. Um, but not everything on TV is crap, and the bear is one of the best things you can watch. So Daniel, well, well, please pack your knives and go, and we will talk to you soon. They do things they don't do on Broadway. They have the All right, thanks, Daniel. Boy, I miss Chicago. I especially miss it in the summertime. I don't miss it so much in December or February. But what a great city. Such great food, such great people, such good times I had there. The Bear is now airing on FX and Hulu. Also, thanks to Omar Gayaga for talking to me about Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal, now on HBO Max, and to Stephen Garrett for arguing with me about Nope, the new Jordan Peele movie, now and forever on your screens. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the greatest living American writer, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, and your host for this weekly exploration into the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. Stop by Chicago if you have a chance. Go to a restaurant or three or ten, and I will talk to you soon. Audio Hopper.